1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Christopher Chalenza, Professor of History and Classics, as well as the James B. Knapp Dean of the Krieger School of Arts and Sciences at Johns Hopkins. And today we're going to talk about Professor Chalenza's 2017 book, Petrarch, Everywhere, A Wanderer, which is being released in paper this year by Reaction Books. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Jan. I'm so glad to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. How are you?
0: I'm doing okay. You know, we're climbing out of the pandemic here. Um, It's a little bit quieter during the month of July. Dean's offices tend to be busy all year round, but we have a little respite right now.
1: That's great. Yeah, you know, um, I was just reviewing your CV, and you haven't slowed down. Like, somehow becoming a, a dean has not slowed your production of scholarship down. Is that witchcraft? What? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I think I, I describe myself as a tortoise, so I try to do a little something every day in the early morning, and then the administrative day begins. But if you do it every day, it tends to add up. So I'm really a tortoise. It's always just whatever little project I'm working on. I do a little, even if it's just a half hour.
1: So. Right on, slow and steady. Well, you're yeah, all right. So let's uh, let's talk about this CVs because our first job here is to kind of put this in the context of your broader intellectual path. And I, you know, it seems to fit quite neatly, like right in your wheelhouse. We've You've got Renaissance Humanism and the Papal Curia, 1999. Was that your dissertation? Yeah. And then Piety and Pythagoras and Renaissance Florence, Brill, 2001. I love that press the last Italian Renaissance in 2006, Machiavelli, 2015. Uh, you got this guy in 2017, and then two more since then, the intellectual world of, re- of the Italian Renaissance and then the Italian Renaissance and the origins of modern humanities. So, I mean, I think it's fair to call, to characterize you as a very like, solid, you are a Renaissance historians, Renaissance historian, right? Deeply enmeshed in the intellectual world of Renaissance Italy. So what made you turn to Petrarch?
0: You know, it's very interesting. It was actually very fortuitous. I was directing the American Academy in Rome from 2010 to 14. And while I was there, I was contacted by Reaction Press to see if I wanted. They were starting a new series of books on Renaissance Lives, and they contacted me at the time to see if I was interested in doing a book on Machiavelli. But I was already writing one on Machiavelli for um, which wound up coming out with Harvard University Press. And I'd been thinking a lot about Petrarch. And so I just asked, well, what about Petrarch? And I wrote a little proposal and they accepted it. And then when I, I left and I came back, you know, I had that on the radar and I, I taught a few classes on Petrarch when I came back to Johns Hopkins after it in 2014, Um, And very memorably, one semester I taught both an undergraduate and a graduate class. And a lot of the texts that I deal with in the book were texts that we worked on in those classes. In fact, one chapter in the book is on the correspondence between Petrarch, who lived from 1304, Um, to 1374 and his friend and slightly younger contemporary Boccaccio, the author of the Decameron. and I remember teaching those three letters that I focus on in that chapter. We, those were the graduate class, basically the Latin letters and we read them together. So so that's how it all came together and it was a lot of fun to write. It was the first time I'd ever really worked with a lot of illustrations. The press uh, reaction started out as an art press basically, and so they were very interested in having illustrations. Um, and so that was something very new to me and made me really sympathize with what art historians have to, you know, deal with when they publish because there's all these permissions you have to get and things like that. So um, anyway, it was a lot of fun to do the book.
1: You know, uh, Reaction's a great press for um, their it's very solid scholarly work, but it's also approachable. And uh, this book is is the same, right? It's very readable and it seems like it would speak to a broader audience. Was that your goal here as well?
0: Yes, absolutely. In fact, I've sort of become convinced this is even happening in my own administrative strategy a little bit, that the work we do in universities is very, very important because it's about the advancement of new knowledge. And what tends to happen there is you're you're inevitably going to be speaking to specialist communities because advancement of new knowledge is often a game of inches. But I think we should build into our work the consciousness that there is a very curious public out there. Curious not for, you know, condescension or nostrums, but curious for new things, new ideas, new interpretations. But developing that register to speak to the broader public is something that I think we all in academia should be doing, because I think it helps us make the case as to why why we have legitimacy, why our institutions have legitimacy.
1: Um, and it's something I think we're that that is almost trained out of us, right? I mean, uh, the part of grad school—it's—we it, all joke about it, but you know, it's only—it's kind of true that part of grad school is learning not to speak to anyone. <laughs>
0: you know? Yeah, I know it's interesting. I, I take great inspirations from colleagues too. We have this wonderful colleague here at Johns Hopkins called Martha, named Martha Jones, and she recently published a brilliant, award-winning book called Vanguard, and the book is about. Um, the, the hitherto little known place that black women in the United States had in the search for universal suffrage. And through this really kind of painstaking archival work, uh, Martha found all of these new ways that black women contributed through civic organizations and churches and so on. But she wrote it in such a way that it, it really is, as you said before, it's approachable. And I think it's the kind of work that will eventually change how U.S. history is taught once it's received, which it will be over time. And so you take inspiration from from people like that who are doing work that really is, you know, by any scholarly definition tied to sources, solid, um, not just repeating old narratives, but. But but you, you think about, you know, talking to people who I always think about smart undergraduate students. Right. They might not know much about a topic at hand, but they're going to ask the most pressing questions. the Why is it important question? And so that's the audience I also try to keep in mind as well is, you know, what would it take to introduce somebody who I know is smart and firing all pistons, but just might not be a specialist in this or that field?
1: Right. And like what what might be of interest to them? What's going to speak to broader narratives? Um, You know, so speaking of source material, though, before we get any further into like the meat of this book, what did you look at for Petrarch?
0: Well, you know, the other thing that, to be frank, was very appealing about this is that there's still a lot of There's still some manuscript work to be done on Petrarch. But the truth is that his major works have been edited and some re-edited and edited and translated and so on. So it was the kind of work that by the time I started writing it, I really was doing a lot of administrative work, which meant that I was traveling a lot and so on. It was the kind of thing you could do on the move. One thing I have I have not been able to do too much of anymore is you know spending those eight hour days in in libraries and archives and things like that that I did at the earlier part of my career. But so I mean the work was all of his you know edited works you know his many vernacular works and then I think what I really tried to highlight in the book was that in his own life his Latin work was very important to him. And within a few generations, it kind of stopped being important. And I wanted to plumb that as well. You know, I I say at the outset of the book that there's sort of, you know, three different sort of versions of Petrarch, right? There's, you know, the the inaugurator of the Renaissance, right, Who, who who back to antiquity and then seeks a better way to modernity. There's Petrarch, the vernacular poet, right, the Tuscan poet who writes love poetry. And that's really why he's, if he's known today, that's why he's known. But then there was Petrarch, the Latin writer. And, you know, that, again, is something in which there is a profusion of works of his, but just very, very little studied. Um, and I will say that, you know, one relies on the absolutely crucial work of many, many scholars, often in Italy, who have done painstaking work, not just of editing his, um, his text, but even things like his annotations. Um, and, and it's incredibly important, like when you see how somebody is reading a work by the, what they put in the margins of the work, you can actually kind of gauge them reading in in something like real time, you know. Um, and, and so even that kind of painstaking work, given how important he is in the Italian literary tradition, he's even those sorts of things have been edited. So there was a rich variety of source material from which to draw. And, you, you know, you stand on the shoulders of people who've done that work.
1: Absolutely. That work, I think, is something uh, that's really neat, the annotation where you can see this dialectic between this famous, like you know, this author and kind of how he's how he's writing and how he's reading. And you can really get into his head. Um, quick question. Why do you think his like Petrarch, the Latin writer, is it kind of falls out of fashion or just gets is kind of forgotten for a while?
0: you know it goes back to it goes back to the renaissance itself so he you know he's he's seen in some ways i mean you know if you if you look at the work of for example my mentor ron witt ron Witt showed in a brilliant book that um petrarch in some ways you could argue as a third generation humanist and and to make that argument you have to make the case that renaissance humanism was mostly about writing classical latin so there's two intellectual generations before him coming out of the north of italy padra um, where people are writing in Latin and they're interested in the classical world. So Petrarch comes along third generation um, and, and brings this Christian sensibility to his work. So that that's Ron Witt's argument. And I think it's it's largely valid. But there's also a way in which there's something unique about Petrarch. So even if it might not be right to call him, let's say, the first Italian humanist, he's the first one who makes it a, a broad movement, right, so to speak. But intellectual life proceeds in generations. And so The next generation, you could argue, is headed up by someone whom Petrarch knew, Coluccio Salutati, and then right after that, the people that Salutati trained in Florence. There's a thinker named Leonardo Bruni, for example. And Bruni and others of that generation credit Petrarch with that one of those three things that I mentioned before. They credit him as being the one who opened the door to antiquity, who said, well, it's really important for us if we're going to help the modern world to look to antiquity. But even by that point, they start to... um, Look down is too strong a term, but they start to look at his Latin as less than um, perfectly classical because by their generation, they had done so much work on writing Latin in the style of Cicero, you know, the exemplar of classical Latin, that they came to see his attempts as not quite fumbling, but not quite up to their era. And so even from that very beginning, it's not that his works weren't known, but they ceased to be things that are in the vanguard of scholarship, even in the early 15th century. And then later, you know, there's, a I would say, a second, much larger reason, which is that a lot of our humanities disciplines, I think, came together in their modern form in the 19th century. And at the in the early 19th century, as modern universities were rising up, you know, in Berlin in 1810 and other exemplars, a few cultural assumptions were in the air. Um, one of these assumptions was that, uh, was about authenticity in native, native languages. So the idea was that you know, these Italian thinkers in Petrarch's wake, Petrarch himself and these Italian thinkers in his wake, um, they almost took a wrong turn in writing in Latin, as many of them did. Which is to say, again, this, this idea of turning toward the ancient past was great because, you know, that becomes this exemplar for so many people. But what they should have done was focus on their vernacular writings. When you pair that with the rise of what you could argue is nationalistic history writing in the 19th century, you, you have not only Petrarch's Latin writings falling off the radar, um, but as I tried to show in my long ago book now, The Lost Italian Renaissance, you have a lot of Renaissance Latin writings falling off the scholarly radar, only to be rediscovered in the early 20th century by heroes of the field like Paul Oscar Christeller and, uh, and Eugenio Garin. So there's a, it's complicated, right? I mean, for Petrarch himself, it's his own era. And then, you know, for the larger problem of what do you do about this profusion of Latin work that's written in this long, you know, say period from say 1300 to 1600, what do you do about all that? There's reasons, I think, why it's it's taken a backseat.
1: That's fascinating that the idea, you know, that part of creating this kind of myth of Petrarch as the father of the Renaissance involves doing away with a lot of the work that meant a lot to
0: him. Yes, indeed. It's, it's very interesting, right? It's very, yeah. very interesting. Yeah.
1: Well, let's talk about this. Um, how is he the father of the Renaissance? Like this idea,
0: as if anyone. Yeah, gets I mean, I think, I don't. No, I mean, I, I think in some ways that is that is a, it's it's a worthy it's an argument that can be made. And again, I think if you if you dig into the specialized scholarship, as I mentioned earlier, you know there's work by Ronald Witt and others that show that, you know, there's this broad continuity, right. Um, throughout let's say the high middle ages let's say the period from you know roughly 1050 to 1300 where you know if you start to plunk yourself down in the 12th century in in France you see a lot of interest in classical works in the ancient world you see some of that happening in emerging centers of new knowledge like you know cathedral schools then eventually in the 13th century in universities you see some of it being translated into um, works of troubadour poets And you see some of that work coming south from France into northern Italy, and then all of a sudden you see that classicizing energy, you know, begin to take place in Latin. So in that sense, right, if you could argue that there's this broad interest in the Middle Ages in the classical world um you know um but I think with Petrarch a number of things come together in an almost obsessive way so first there's interest in the ancient world which again people are you know doing this work in Italy the great scholar Carrie Benish for example wrote this wonderful book about how medieval Italy you know thought, looked at the ancient world so but there's that's there so that's there for Petrarch the ancient world um there's this really profound sense that the Latin language then in use in his day didn't match the grandeur of ancient Latin. And so what does this mean to unpack it, right? You know, Latin as a native language dies out in Europe. It's hard to know exactly when, but let's say, you know, roughly the eighth century, right? But it becomes, right, you know, it's hard to know, like when is somebody writing something, saying something in the vernacular, but writing it down in Latin. But, you know, the, the first sort of instances of the vernaculars that we have are usually from the, the 10th century, right? We start to see things written down. Um, But Latin is still in use as the language of education and culture and the, the language often of diplomacy and, importantly, the language of the church. So Petrarch starts to feel that, okay, so I have this appreciation for classical antiquity, on the other hand, that a lot of other people have. I have this very profound sensitivity to the Latin language. I see that the Latin in use in universities around me isn't quite matching up with Um, you know, the Latin of antiquity that I'm coming to love. And I think there's a third thing for Petrarch that really does, if you were going to say he's the father of the Renaissance, I would say this is why. And that is that we see the beginnings of something that runs through a lot of the work of a lot of Italian humanists, not all of them, but a lot of them. And that is a sense that contemporary institutions aren't doing the job they should be doing. So Petrarch really becomes, you know, the first major thinker to criticize universities in his day, um, and, and for him again, this this criticism is a, is coming from what he believes to be a Christian perspective, right? He's saying, "Look, you're studying theology." in universities like Paris and other places, but you're doing it in this way that's very logically oriented. Um, it's about syllogisms. When you go back to read the New Testament, it's it's more about, you know, humble evangelization and the messages of the Sermon on the Mount. You're missing all of that universities, right? So I think if he's the father of the Renaissance, I, I argue that one of the most distinctive things about Renaissance humanism throughout the 15th century is actually this, the ability to create a posture of being anti-institutional and using that posture to criticize institutions. I say posture because most Renaissance humanists, Petrarch very much included, spend time at universities, um, but they still are able to sort of extract themselves from them and, and look in and criticize them. And maybe I could add just one more thing, Yeah, I don't want to go on too long with this. You know, there's something about institutions, and now that I'm a university administrator, I see this, Here's some facts right in the year 1300 we can we can track about 15, 16 universities that had, that had arisen by that point in Europe, if you look at the work of Jacques Verger and others who, who studied this. If you fast forward to the year 1500, you can track well over 60 of them. So what that meant is, in a lot of ways, they were doing the work they were supposed to do. They were useful, right? There are a lot of students that were going to universities. Most of the students weren't there to become professional scholars, right? Most of them were there to get some training, to get a Bachelor of Arts degree, maybe a Master of Arts degree, then go work in bureaucracies in Europe and things like that. Um, but what's inevitable, right, is that is something that Marsha Collish and others have studied, which is that as those universities grew, oftentimes curricula became standardized. And you could legitimately make the critique as some people from inside universities actually did that we're starting to ask questions not because they matter to the world that's currently around us now but because they're on the curriculum or you could make the critique that a number of people from within the university world did too that we're getting too hyper specialized that we're talking only to each other um and so i think it's it's kind of an eternal problem with the organization of knowledge is that you know you you get together um, you become very good at passing on traditions, which is something we have to do, right? I mean, you still have to teach calculus, right? Even if you're teaching in a new way, it's still calculus, you know, the modern world, obviously. Um, but sometimes universities and, and institutions of higher learning have trouble being nimble and reacting to the outside world. So to turn back to Petrarch. You know, there's numerous cases in his work where he criticizes universities, and that's a style of criticism that really has legs. You can, you can look at everybody in the Renaissance, you know, Poggio Bracciolini, Leonardo Bruni, Lorenzo Valla, um, even somebody who was a university professor later, like Angelo Poliziano, who died in 1494. He was a professor at the University of Florence, but he still criticized parts of the university. So that's something that has legs. So if he's so to get back to your question, see the father of the renaissance, <laughs> I think that that is a way to think about it, right? He's I would say he's clearly like you know the the key exponent of this anti-institutional side. <laughs>
1: So we've got this, cla- this guy writing in Latin, classical, like really classical knowledge here, like working in Latin. We have um, a new school of critique and a new way, at least, you know, kind of introducing the new a new way of thinking about the world. And then we've got this beautiful love poet. It, was, it makes sense of this from, me. tell me a little bit about his poetry yeah, and him as a poet.
0: No, exactly. Yeah. It's very interesting. You know, he, what, what, I I think there's there's a public posture that he that he creates Um, and the public posture is when I was young I cared about love and I cared about um, things that aren't so serious as I got older you know I started to care about serious things like history and, and religion and in that transformation, I moved away from writing vernacular love poetry, and I moved into writing, quote, serious, unquote, stuff in Latin. That's the public posture. And if you read his correspondence with Boccaccio, he tries to sort of talk about it in that way. But on the other hand, um, we know that he, throughout his entire life, revised his his Right, this is his great set of you know um, po- poems in the in the Tuscan vernacular. He revised it nine times and never stopped. Right, so so the, the actual practice of his life, we know it mattered to him greatly. Why does he create this public posture? Well, a couple of things he reveals, I would say, almost inadvertently in letters to Boccaccio, um, he's got this mountain under whose shadow he's 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 operating, and that mountain is Dante Alighieri. Right, who had earlier in the century written his, his comedy, later called the Divine Comedy because it was so beloved, that was almost a summation of a lot of thinking of the medieval world. It was a truly stunningly beautiful use of the Tuscan language. So Petrarch feels like he's writing a little bit in Dante's shadow, number one. And then number two, the story he also tells is, and this is where I, I do think there's something to talk about here. Um, he really does want to be remembered centuries hence. It's unusual in that way, right? You don't find this in the Middle Ages that much, and you know, it's unusual that he wants to be remembered like this. So he comes to believe that Latin has a little bit more of a permanence about it, right? It lasted from antiquity to now. So as far as the Italian poet goes, as you as you talk about, um, he does a few things. So, well, one, you know, he 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 um, has this sighting in thirteen twenty seven. He says in Avignon of a woman named Laura. Right. And so this becomes, right. This becomes his muse. Um, and, and in some ways, right. This is, you know, one of these fascinating things to behold in another way, I think it's part of the, um, I would say deeply baked in, you know, uh, misogyny, right. In, in the Western world, but like Lauda really isn't a person with feelings and a personality and thoughts of her own. She becomes, you know, like a thing for him, a thing on which you, 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 you know, you base your poetry and so on. Um, so, so everything, in some ways, he argues, is dedicated to her when he writes. And, you know, he does. He sees her as a symbol of purity, of beauty, of chastity, of all the things that he's having trouble with in life. He sees her as, in some ways, the solution, right? So the poetry is some, sometimes about that. The poetry is also often about um, uh, Italy itself. You know, I, he, because he was born in Florence, but his father was exiled from the city of Florence in the same series of political purges in which Dante himself had been exiled. Petrarch, oddly enough, for a Tuscan poet, grows up in France. Why? The papal court, you know, from the, very, from the first decade of the 14th century through uh, to the 1370s and then beyond to an extent, is located in Avignon, France, right? It's, it's, it's this long period in which the papacy's not in Rome and it's in France. So Petrarch grows up there, his father, who had been a notary, which is kind of like a what we think of when we think of a, a lawyer today, you know, somebody who would help you with documents and, you know, contracts and things like that. Papacy needs a lot of those because it's a big institution by that point. His father goes there as a notary. Petrarch grows up there in France. And so I think this image of himself as a Florentine this notion in his poetry of cultivating himself as a specifically Tuscan Florentine writer, right? Writing the vernacular, writing Italian, but Tuscan Italian, um, it's ever more um, emphasized by the fact that he sees himself as a kind of exile. And so those, you know, we talked about the poetry, that's about love. There's also poetry that's about Italy. Um, one that's called Italia Mia. And again, this is, you know, something shaped by the sense of exile shaped by this sense of, you know, I didn't get to see Rome until I was older. He finally goes to Rome and sees these ruins. He's inspired by, you know, as anybody would be in the Middle Ages, these gigantic things that are crumbling, but that in their own ruinous beauty um, evince the idea that there had been an ancient empire, that there had been something great in the past, in the distant past. And so there's this truly, I think, um, impractical, um, you know, idealistic never to be realized dream, right? That Italy would come together again. And so some of the poetry points to that, right? Points to the fact that, you know, oh, our rulers are dissolute. We should come together. We should kick all these foreigners out. Foreigners, meaning like Germans were coming in, right? Else coming in, right? Um, and we should, and we should unify Italy again. I mean, Italia Mia becomes so important that uh, Machiavelli himself uses lines from it as the very closing lines of the prince, um, you know? hundreds of years later. So, so those themes are there, right? There's themes of Italy shaped by his notion of exile. There's themes of love, you know, and idealism. Um, and again, I think it, it also tells us something interesting, just maybe to close with this on the poetry. As I mentioned, we know of nine different, what we call authorial redactions during his life, meaning he sort of, you know, reordered the poems at different times, you know, added things, subtracted things. It tells us something about publication in that era too, right? This is before printing with movable type. And I say in the book only somewhat facetiously that you only really have a final editorial version when you're dead, right? Because, you know, he kind of he he would have probably had he lived longer. He would have kept revising. them. So I think that's that's interesting, too. This idea that he's very conscious as well. One of his letters to Boccaccio, just to close with the, the Italian poetry, one of the reasons he pretends to have stopped dealing with it is he says people are going around reciting it, but they're making mistakes, You know, they're saying things I didn't say, right? And so publication is this very interesting thing. How did you make stuff public back then in an era before we have, you know, like we have now, you know, hundreds of thousands of printed books and so on, so.
1: Mm. You paint this picture of a very interesting person, which is another thing that I've I've really enjoyed about this, is... Petrarch is one of these incredibly famous historical figures, but I mean, in some ways, maybe more of a myth or an idea than an actual person. Um, And, you know, he's invoked in so many ways, but this book really deals with him in this other way. I feel like I understand Petrarch as a human being going about the world. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a great question. I remember when I was teaching those classes I was telling you about and what and the other more memorable, the memorable and both classes are memorable, but the, the undergraduate class was very memorable because the students would alternate in their perception of him between things like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's so self-centered. And then the next minute saying, oh, you know, because he would do the, He would have this thing where he's very, you know, um, conflicted. And what I mean by that is you know, he's almost obsessively focused on himself, right? So he writes letters about himself, you know, he's always worried about his reputation on the one hand, but the other hand, we have these works of his. One of the works I focus on in the book at length is a work called The Secret. And this is a a dialogue that he wrote in Latin between idealized versions of himself and uh the church father augustine right who lived from 354 to 430 was the author of the confessions and the city of god and really arguably the most famous sort of early christian you know relatively early christian church father um and in that work Petrarch is tormented and again both persona he's writing the whole thing right so but but you know the his own persona franciscus in the dialogue says "I, i can't stop um I can't free myself from the two chains that bind me and augustus what are the two chains well the two chains are love and glory right and and love meaning like this obsession with Lauda, and and for him though that there's also a lot more there like he was very conscious of his own sex life Um, in his early years you know he was he was alternately like augustine had been you know guilty about it but unable to free himself of it um, and then glory, right? Wanting to win glory because of his poetry. Um, and so in that sense, you're right. I mean, it's a very human, you know, there's a very human story, I think, there, which is somebody who, you know, clearly suffered with depression in that dialogue. He and, and Augustine talk about um, his, what they use the term for is I in latin and that you know it means like it can mean listlessness but the way it's talked about you can tell that there's a depression there so he has these moments where he's very public he arranges for example in the city of rome through a carefully constructed set of letters that he would receive a laurel wreath on the capitoline hill so he does that so at times he's very public he's advising people he's doing some diplomacy then there are times when he just has to retreat from everybody so he had bought this little place uh, uh called Vaucluse. Um, you know uh, and and retreats there and is all alone. And so he's very torn between, I think, again, you know the need for glory and reputation on the one hand and then the need to just kind of be with himself and to, and to be thinking and meditating on the other. In that sense too, there's something very unique and I, and I would hesitate to go all modern versus medieval here, but you know there is a famous writer, Jean Leclerc who wrote this uh, wonderful book about medieval, thinking and spirituality. And one of the things that Leclerc noted about a number of medieval thinkers, and he's talking about sort of, you know, early Middle Ages to to the beginnings of the High Middle Ages, right? So is that you would focus a lot on book learning, right? But you would do that so that you could eventually forget the book learning and get closer to God. And I think with Petrarch, that side is there. He really does want that. But on the other hand, he can't ever really do it because he really wants that glory too. He really wants his poetry and he wants his Latin writing and he, he wants to be seen as an authority figure. So in that sense, you're right. I mean, there's a very human story there, I think, that again, in an unusual way, he reveals to us.
1: Augustine is the person he should be talking to then, right? He Those two, those they're very copacetic personages. I agree, I agree yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, what can? What did you want every? What did you want your reader to take away when they're done with this? What do you want them to know?
0: You know, I I think to 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 understand. in obviously, a very short book, but to understand that this was a full life lived. You know that there really were different aspects to this figure petrarch about whom you know you, you hear not nearly as often as dante right but you know one hears of him in the history of culture in the history of writing in the history of poetry history of literature but to know that there was this really deep interesting person to know that um you know like a lot of folks from the pre-modern period parts of his work survived and parts didn't the parts that do survive don't necessarily reflect what was important to him at the time Right. Or, or rather, they don't give a fullness of it. Um, and then also just to sort of immerse oneself in a world where, you know, there's no Internet. Right. There's no printing with movable type. There's no mass transit. Right. There's not really, truly kind of ideas of universal human rights the way we kind of maybe implicitly think of them now. Um and so it, it's a very different world, right? And and so to give people also a taste of just what was it like to live then? What was it like to live when, you know, in one of his sets of letters, you know, he talks about having to travel with an armed escort and that wasn't unusual, right? You know? right. Yeah. So, you know, so I mean, it's sort of that kind of thing as well.
1: Sure. Yeah. You get it, this image of a very, very different world. And I think that I mean, there's a lot, if you want to understand the intellectual world of the Renaissance, you could do worse than to learn from Petrarch, yeah? You could do worse than to read this book,
0: for sure. Oh, yeah, no, I think that, I hope so. Yeah, I hope a lot of the things are there, because I think one of the things I find very interesting about the world we're living in now, and I don't know if you agree with this, is that I think we're, we're going through this real transformation in media and in how we're kind of reading the world, right, you know, and, and, and. Um, I think that when you start to focus on that sort of thing, in other words, what are the instruments by which you're dealing with the world? You know, for us often, right, we're bombarded by, you know, texts of all sorts that are coming at us on computer screens, through earbuds, on phones, on tablets, and so on, which is to say that the material culture of intellectual life is important, right? I mean, we, we wouldn't be experiencing the world in the way we're experiencing it it if it weren't right now mediated through those sorts of features or many of us wouldn't just so i think that to me it's always important that when we're thinking about you know these renaissance figures quote renaissance unquote figures to to realize what a starkly different world it was in terms of information how you got information right um you know um in another one of my books, I have this little story about somebody named Angelo de Cimbre, who's very little known. And one of the things we have of his is we have a supplication that he wrote to a political leader. This is a special request he wrote. And the request was this. He had been traveling around. He had been working as a bibliographer in Spain, This de Cimbre was. And he was robbed by bandits. And he lists what he was robbed of. And among the most um, poignant things are unbound choirs of books that he was writing himself right and it, that's it that's like you lost your whole hard drive you lost your cloud stuff you lost everything and what he was wanting was he wanted this ruler to pay the ransom right but you know you every once in a while in the renaissance you get these windows into that and you know with petrarch too given that he has been so obsessively studied we do have a sense that you know he worked very hard on the physical part of writing right that that mattered to him cared about how his handwriting worked and how handwriting itself worked. We know that given that his father was a notary, um, scholars like Armando Petrucci have reviewed some of Petrarch's re-editing of his own Italian poetry and have seen characteristic marks on the pages that notaries would use. So all of that, I think, is, is, is necessary, too, to think about, you know, what's the material culture through which we're experiencing the world? I, I think we often tend to just put it slightly off center stage. And to me, just because of the transformation we're living through now, it seemed much more center stage, too. So that's why throughout the book, there are, you know, these I, I do talk about actually his annotations. and I talk about his manuscripts and how he wrote and so on.
1: Wonderful. Cool. All right. So I've taken up a ton of your time already, quite enough. So just one last question. What are you working on now? What's next?
0: A couple of little things. So the, I guess the thing that's I'm interested in now is I'm trying to write a short history or not even history, I would say a short historical account of the arts and sciences and why they matter now. And so it's a very short book that reaches back to the ancient liberal arts, the way those arts were Studied and deployed in medieval universities, the challenges to university life of the Renaissance, the great transformation in the early nineteenth century when I think something like our modern sense of the arts and sciences really come into being, and then how they can matter now in the world of universities because i 've noticed that um, a lot of us who do administrative work in universities, and especially I would say people who are at a level above me, presidents and provosts are sometimes under pressure from boards of trustees or the outside world, you know, to, to think about, well, why why do you do these disciplines that that sometimes seem disconnected from the world or that have long time horizons and their discoveries and so on? And so I'm just trying to make the case as to why that's still valid because I think it is. So, so mm. that's what I've been working on.
1: Oh, thank you. Someone, please, 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 please. <laughs> yeah, let's hope. Yeah, this idea that we don't, um, that what we're doing isn't, going to connected or isn't useful in the modern world is we're asking just simply what it means to be a human being and i don't know what is more valid and more
0: important right now than- i think that's right now especially right i mean you know just given given where we are when it comes to you know all the literature that you're reading recently on posthumanity right and and things like that i do think it's important to reflect i mean to keep discovering things about the past because i think there's always things that have touch points to the the world that we're in now so Wonderful.
1: All right. Uh, Crystal, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me this your morning. Um, It was an absolute joy. All right, listeners, again, this is uh, Patrick. Um, So when, when will we see this in paper?
0: Paperback is supposed to come out this August, actually. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So very soon. The
1: hardcover is still available to you, but in August, Petrarch Everywhere available. A Wanderer. I think
0: they may have sold out of a lot. I think they're still out there. They're still available, but the pe- the, the paper version is orderable now. So
1: Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, from Reaction Books, Petrarch Everywhere A Wanderer. All right. Thank you very much. Take care.
0: Thanks. Thanks. So